Our scripture reading is from Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to war, to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. It makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it has allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666 the word of God for the people of God. Okay, children, you all can go, those of you who want to, with Mr. Wim. Wim will be praying for you. Uh, let us know if you need any help. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love having... All the children with us, adults, uh, please open in your Bible to Revelation chapter 13. All right, take, take a deep breath. Revelation chapter 13, we're continuing a series called Revelation, a vision that we can all understand. The idea is that Revelation is presenting, presenting to us a vision of spiritual realities that we are meant to understand. Revelation is not meant to confuse. 
It's not meant to be decoded. It is presenting a timeless truth about the powers of good and evil and how they wage war against each other and how we as human beings are caught up in that ongoing battle between good and evil, that there is something happening that is unseen, something behind the physical that is spiritual, that has always been and always will be and is taking place in our very midst and affects us in tangible ways. And so the question is, how is God's people as the church who John is writing to, how are we affected by that and how in turn do we fight against it? How do we combat the evil that we see every day on the front page or on the internet or driving down the street, the brokenness of this world? We interpret Revelation not with current events, but with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is mentioned some 600 times in the book of Revelation, more than any other book in the Bible. There's a direct connection between the story that is being told from Genesis to Revelation, and the Bible itself is our interpretive tool to understand what Revelation is talking about, even when it's talking about beasts and dragons and pregnant women, and we're wondering what does it all mean. There, are, there is a resource and in Scripture itself that we need to look to and familiarize ourselves. One reason in today's culture we have such a hard time understanding what Revelation is talking about is because we're so biblically illiterate. Many of us don't know the stories of the Bible. We don't study the Bible. We hear it on Sunday morning. We hear it in Sunday school, maybe growing up, but then we don't study it ourselves. So these things seem foreign to us. When to John's original audience, they would have been very familiar. It's familiar as Jesus' parables of the Good Samaritan or the prodigal son. We're not reading future history here out of a newspaper, but we're learning spiritual realities of our present age through a visionary prophetic picture book. That's what I believe Revelation is. Now, I recognize we have a lot of visitors today. We recognize we come from a wide array of traditions. So you may not agree with my interpretation of Revelation, and that is okay. There is space for different interpretations for it. And if you want to grab a cup of coffee because my interpretation of what the mark of the beast is or what these beasts are really bothers you, let's, let's sit down and talk through it. That's totally fine. I'd be happy to do that. But this week we're really continuing to focus on the nature of evil and how Satan goes about attacking and persecuting the church through human means and what that means for us today and how we are supposed to fight against evil ourselves. So let me pray and we'll dig in. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the sobering reality that evil is very present, that it affects us in really tangible ways. Lord, as we grasp for control, as we grasp for hope, as we grasp for peace, may we find it in you and not in anything that this world has to offer. May you be, you are our Prince of Peace. May we find that peace in you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I think what is being described here, particularly in Revelation chapter 13, is Daniel, Daniel Nealon preached last week for me, and he did such a great job of really showing us um, the dramatization that is taking place in Revelation of spiritual warfare, 
of evil that is taking place. That, that the Bible says that there is a very real um, uh, authority over evil named Satan. That he is, every, he is the opposite of everything that God is. And he is waging war against God and his people. And John's original audience is being persecuted by these evil forces through the Roman Empire and their corrupt schemes to have mankind worship the emperor, this false god, and that everything that Satan does is counterfeit. And what can, what, this can best be described in Revelation 13 as really an unholy trinity. You have the dragon and you have his two beasts. And these three powers work together to wage war against the church and God's people and to corrupt it. So John is cluing us in to who the real enemy is in this life and how that enemy operates. This is very important for us to understand as we see evil perpetuating throughout the world in all its different forms and machinations. And we're often left greatly discouraged by it. Daniel reminded us last week that Satan does not have the power to create. What the Bible says is that all Satan can do is pervert. He perverts truth. He manipulates his victims into believing half-truths and lies. He pointed to Genesis 3 at the very beginning. That's how he, he corrupted the world and brought sin into existence. Did God really tell you not to eat of the tree? Did he really say that you would die? He takes the truth of God's word and then he corrupts it and he offers a counterfeit. So Satan figured out long ago that his only method for deceiving people into following him instead of Jesus was to offer a counterfeit to the real thing. And as you all probably know, a counterfeit is an exact imitation, a fraudulent copy of the real thing. And this chapter is all about Satan's counterfeits. Now here's the problem. If you don't recognize a counterfeit for what it is, if someone hands you counterfeit money and you go and try to spend it, you're going to feel like a fool. And you're going to make a mistake. And you might even be prosecuted for it. If you don't recognize the counterfeits for what they are, you are prey to being deceived and corrupted by them. And so what John is trying to tell the church is, everything you see that's vying for your allegiance and your worship, even at the sake of your very life, threatens to corrupt you. And you need to recognize what those corruptions are. And... As, although they have the, the, the present applications in John's original audience in the, in, in the form of Rome, they also have future applications in, in for God's people forever. So that's why they're, they're talked about in these symbolic forms. That's why we don't need to piece together every single thing with some sort of present government or person. But they are symbolic of a timeless truth about how evil works. Satan offers what looks like power and control and peace and pleasure and satisfaction, but anything he offers is merely an imitation of what God truly offers. This is why pornography is so effective. It offers a sense of control and affirmation and even joy, but it doesn't last. As we know, God created sex between a man and a woman as the most satisfying form of intimacy, but Satan counterfeits it with pornography, offering all the physical benefits and no commitment. It is God who creates, it's Satan who counterfeits. Demon possession counterfeits being filled with the Spirit. God is truth. Satan is the author of lies. God is light. Satan is darkness. And understanding that is a major key to understanding the whole of the Bible and the story that it is telling and our very lives today.
The world is riddled with evil counterfeits, and if we can't recognize them, then we fall prey to being deceived and even destroyed by them. I think one thing to remember here is that typically people only take the time to counterfeit what is most valuable, right? You're only going to counterfeit money. If you take a a short look at the top 10 list of the most counterfeited items in the U.S., it's jewelry, it's expensive handbags, it's designer shoes, it's even pharmaceuticals. And as Christians, we believe that the Bible is saying that the most valuable thing in all of creation is God's glory. To experience God's glory is to experience the greatest sense of value that we can experience as mankind because that's what we were meant for, God's glory. Not even our own satisfactions, but God's glory. You were meant for something else. You were meant for a greater purpose than just to satisfy yourself or to be in control of your own life. And when you experience that surrender to the glory of God, you experience that sense of home and that sense of rest, that sense of being in communion with the Father, that you were meant to have a relationship with Him. That's your purpose, to know and be known by God. And Satan is doing everything to steal away God's glory from you because it is the most valuable thing in creation. It's, he does everything he can to counterfeit it so that you think glory lies in these other things. And home and rest lies in these false counterfeit gods. That's how Satan works. That's the timeless truth in Revelation 13. So this morning I want to unpack three points. Who are these beasts? What it means to be marked by them? And how are we are to be victorious against them? So who are these beasts? Again, this is my interpretation. The first beast, um, for an accurate interpretation of what the first beast is, you really have to look at, like I said, to the Old Testament, to Daniel chapter 7, which John is referencing here. Daniel in the Old Testament had a vision of his own. Throughout the scriptures, there's these prophets having visions of false kingdoms. Because that is the nature of history, that people will rise up, Satan will raise up kingdoms that have power over people, and they will make people think it is in these governments and in these kingdoms and in these militaries that they find their safety and their peace. And it is not. As good as America is, as much as we love our country and we might be patriotic, patriotic about it, it does not ultimately protect us. We are still vulnerable to evil. It does not ultimately give us the power and the control that we seek or long for, although many of us may think it does. And in Daniel chapter 7, he had a vision of four beasts, not two, four. And the four beasts symbolized four kingdoms. Most scholars agree on that. The kingdoms of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome in successive order. These are kingdoms that would come and one would be greater than the next. And the fourth beast was Rome itself. And that beast would be kind of a combination of all four beasts and it would take all the good parts and it would would, uh, take all of the power of those kingdoms and then it would offer an even greater power. It would dominate the world in a way that no one had ever seen before. And that's why Daniel says in his vision that this vision of this fourth kingdom with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze and ten horns was exceedingly more terrifying than all of the rest. Hundreds of years before Rome comes, Daniel has this vision of Rome, this kingdom that would come, that would persecute God's people in a way that no other kingdom ever had, that would feed those people to the lions, that would make them swear allegiance to worshiping the emperor or die. 
there would be persecution unleashed against God's church in a way that the world had never seen. And that was exceedingly terrifying for Daniel to see. And it's my belief that this first beast we have here is the fulfillment of Daniel's vision of that fourth beast. Rome would have appeared to be exceedingly more terrifying than all the rest. You notice that the first beast John sees here is actually a combination of all of them. You also notice that the beast comes out of the sea as opposed to the land. The second beast comes from the land. The first beast comes from the sea. In Hebrew literature, things that came from the sea were mysterious and chaotic and terrifying. These large beasts that no one had ever seen or that were rare and that were exceedingly terrifying. And that's what he compares it to, a beast coming out of the sea. And the ten horns on its head represent ten emperors who ruled Rome. The diadems on each horn represent their royalty and the regality in which they ruled. Again, emperors in Rome, they demanded worship. They said, I am God. They put their image on coins and on everything else. And they said, you must worship me as the one true God. There's all these other secondary gods that you can make sacrifices to, but ultimately you have to worship the emperor. He is the manifestation of the ultimate power in the universe. And if you don't do that, then you can't buy and trade in the marketplace. You can't have the rights that all of the other Romans have. So don't go against it or you'll lose everything. Maybe your very life. So they threatened people that they had to worship the emperor. And these emperors who would come in the, throughout time in the Roman emperor, em, empire, they look beautiful with their pomp and their regal clothing and their fancy things, but they did not come from the light. They come from the darkness. Because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And it has blasphemous names, it says, on its head because each emperor demanded to be worshipped as the one true God, claiming the name of deity over the one true God. And verse 3 is really interesting because it says that one head seemed to have a mortal wound, but it was miraculously healed and the entire world marveled at it. Again, what you have here is a counterfeit of what? The resurrection. And what it's believed is that Nero, who was one of the greatest emperors that ever ruled Rome, but also one of its greatest persecutors against the church, he was rejected by his own senate, and when he lost power in 68 AD, he committed suicide. And then rumors spread all throughout the Roman Empire, people who had been influenced by Christianity spreading and heard about their God being resurrected, they started to say that their God was resurrected. And successive emperors would come along, and after Nero died, the the Roman Empire would nearly collapse. It would almost be dealt this death blow, if you will, this mortal wound, until a man named Vespasian and his two sons, Titus and Domitian, started to restore the glory of Rome for a time, right before it fell. So it breathed life back into it. It looked like the Roman Empire had been revived and resurrected, and it was not. It's, again, Satan's counterfeit. Who else had a mortal wound in the book of Revelation that we read about? The lamb who was slain. The one who was truly resurrected. This beast also has people from every nation and tongue and tribe worshiping his false names. John tells us that the beast that through the beast, the dragon is worshipped. Just like God is worshipped through the church. 
It means that Satan is made much of through the corrupt schemes of these tyrants doing his bidding. And in verse 4, it says they worship the beast. The beast represents worldly political power believed to offer the peace and prosperity that only God can. I think one reason that Rome's not named here specifically is, again, because John is saying this is how all earthly kingdoms work. They want you to think you can find your peace and salvation in them, and you can't. They offer good things. They do offer a form of safety. They do offer a form of peace. They do offer a form of power, but they ultimately do not bring it eternally. So I think it's easy for us to look, especially in our country, to government and government leaders instead of to God to offer peace and happiness and to begin to judge people who don't support the political leaders that we support. And so we make our politics religious. We begin to make judgment calls based upon political strategies and beliefs and convictions. Here's the thing. The battle we're facing as Christians is not whether or not we can say that we're Christians. What I mean by that is, you ask a lot of people in our country if they're a Christian, they'll say yes, because culturally, a lot of people think that they're Christians. They think since they're associated with the church, or associated with some political party, or associated with some particular group, that that makes them Christians. The battle is not whether or not we tell people we're Christians. The battle is that in times of trouble, what do we give our allegiance to and how do we live as Christians on display to the world? What do we look to in times of fear? What is our salvation? Do people that know you know where you look? Do they see where you look in times of fear and desperation? Do you try and control circumstances? by your own means, because you don't trust God? Or are you able to surrender and trust God and be dependent and oftentimes mistreated, abused, even? That's the first beast. The second is like it. The second beast is really the political groups and enterprises that make up the people of the kingdom. It's the people who encourage man to look to governments for salvation. It's the propaganda. It's the images plastered all over the walls, all over cities to make people believe that that particular leader is God himself, is worthy of worship. And this beast is from the earth and represents local forces that collaborate with Rome. Verse 12, it says, this beast speaks like a dragon and exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. It means it's corrupt. And Satan can often manipulate these earthly these earthly political powers and groups to do his bidding. They're vulnerable. It says it makes the earth and its people worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed again. It performs great signs and tells people to make an image of the first beast and worship it. It gives breath to the first beast, and it marks the people to show allegiance to the first beast. It's referred to as the false prophet in opposition to the two witnesses that we had in chapter 11 who spoke truth about who the true God was, the church and God's people. You see this all throughout history, communists, parades in Red Square, Nazism and Hitler and youth rallies, Saddam and Chairman Mao and their statues and posters threatening people to remember the consequences for opposing them. I think you even see it in biased media in America. 
telling you the truth lies with a certain political party, causing division and disunity amongst God's own people. It says this beast has two horns like a lamb. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Again, it's a parody and a counterfeit to the sacrificial lamb John saw in the throne room. And these beasts mark us. Now, how are we marked by them? This is the most, this may be the most controversial part of Revelation, okay? It says that they're marked by this number 666, the mark of the beast. The number is a number of a man. And John says it takes wisdom to understand. He who has ears, let him hear this truth. Obviously, I don't think this is a literal mark. I don't think this is a microchip. I don't think this is a tattoo. I don't think this is a brand. I think this is a mark in two senses. One, it is a mark of a man. How is man marked spiritually? He is marked by sin. It is saying that we are all marked by this beast. We are all marked by the schemes of the dragon. We are all influenced by evil. We're all born into sin. We're born with this mark, this indelible tattoo of sorts, this unerasable mark on us. But it's also a mark that we receive when we look to the things of this world to offer us what only God can. It's death by a thousand cuts. It's going to these things again and again, thinking they will satisfy when they don't. And it leaves that mark. It perpetuates that, that mark that we already have. I think to understand this, you need to understand that there are no numbers. I don't know if you knew this. I didn't realize this until this week. There's no numbers in Greek and Hebrew. So letters from the alphabet represent numbers. So A equals 1, B equals 2, and so on and so forth. And we've seen that numbers in Revelation have symbolic meaning, and 666 is no different. It's a cryptograph and a parody as well. It's a counterfeit. The number for perfection, as we've seen, and completeness is... The number for completeness is 7. The number for perfection is 7 three times over. 777. The name Jesus in this cryptographic system comes out as the number 888. Some kind of super perfection. Nero, the number of the man, that some people believe the name Nero, certainly the word beast in this cryptographic system comes out as the number 660. One number, in a sense, shy of perfection. It's coming close to the real thing, but it's not the real thing. It's a counterfeit. The name Christ, it appears seven times in Revelation. The word scroll appears seven times. The number four in Revelation is the number of the world, representing the four corners of the world, the four peoples and divisions of the world, the nations and the people and the tribes and languages. And interestingly, the word lamb, referring to Jesus, appears 28 times in Revelation. Four times seven equals 28 shows the worldwide scope of the Lamb's complete victory over the worldly kingdoms. 666 is the way of the dragon versus the way of the Lamb. It's not a barcode. It's a spiritual language. It's attributing the counterfeit nature of evil and how to recognize it. The mark of 666 is really this, the word used for, for mark is used, the same word used for an emperor's seal on official documents. 
And again, it's a parody of the seal of the saints from chapter 7. The saints of God, those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, they're sealed forever with a better seal, a true seal. And so we have to ask ourselves, conclusion here, how can we be victorious if we are marked by this beast, if we are influenced by these beasts and its dragon and this, this, this number of corruption and counterfeitness? It's through the way of the Lamb. The way of the Lamb offers a seal and a covering rather than a mark and a scar. You see, it's, we don't have to overthink this. This is just the gospel in Revelation chapter 13. There's good, there's evil. We are marked by evil. We're born into evil and suffering. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. How are we made alive together with God? And it's through the way of the Lamb, the one who interceded for us, the one who made it so that you didn't have to erase your own scars, so that you didn't have to earn or merit his love, but he offered it to you through the way of sacrifice and surrender, the way of the Lamb, the way of humility, not the way of the dragon, the way of power and abuse and tyranny and deceit and lies and corruption. The way of the Lamb is one of sacrifice and love and service and suffering and forgiveness. And where the dragon uses evil to oppress and afflict, the Lamb makes itself vulnerable to evil, exposing itself fully to its ill effects so as to deliver us from its tyranny. The reason people don't study Revelation, I think, is not because it's too hard to understand. I think it's because it demands too much. It asks you to walk the way of the Lamb. How are you doing? How are you surrendering today? How are you facing evil with hope? Are you trying to grab it by its reins and take control of it and be victorious over yourself? Or are you trusting in the way of the Lamb? It's a really hard way to live because it doesn't make sense to our world, a world of control and power. It calls for patient endurance. That's what John, it's the very words of John here. He calls for endurance and faith and wisdom. We don't get those on our own. We're not victorious by overcoming evil on our own. Evil is completely overwhelming. For me and my family this week, it's been so palpable and so real and so in our face lately that it's sickening and it's highly distressing. It's highly disruptive. Evil touches our very lives to the brokenness of our very neighbors. I see the evil of the world in the faces of the homeless people who live in the, a few streets over. I see it in the mentally ill and the drug addicted that sit on the benches of the bus stops. I see the sadness and the depression and the longing in their faces. And I feel it myself. And I wonder, Lord, what are you doing? One of Essie's favorite things to pray about is Jesus coming back. She said she made a wish. I think you all were at the mall and did a coin into the fountain or something like that. She said, Dad, can I tell you what my wish is? My wish is that Jesus would come back today. That's what my six-year-old's wishing for. Because she sees evil next door to her. She sees the corruption of it. She sees how it affects her lives, and she hates it, and she's six. So how do we teach her to deal with evil? It's through the way of the Lamb. It's through the way of prayer.
what hope do we have? Where do we place our trust? Where do we look for victory? We do it through loving our enemies, blessing those who persecute us. The way of the dragon, again, it's retaliation and vengeance and hatred. The way of the lamb is humility and forgiveness and mercy. And I can only walk the way of the lamb by being freed of the chains of the dragon whose prison I was born into. What's it going to be for you this morning? For whom are you looking to deliver you? John says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. What do you hear God saying to you this morning? What is he calling you to this morning? As I went to go see the Avengers Endgame, because it had to make its way into a sermon at some point, I was thinking, because I'm thinking through these spiritual things while I'm watching this just silly superhero movie and crying. And as I was, you know, facing the things that my family's facing, I noticed that the movie, the whole kind of idea of the movie is that everything is corrupted with the snap of a finger and that everything is going to be restored with the snap of a finger in an instant. And I think we resonate with that movie. Millions of people, billions of dollars are spent on it because we like to sit there and see that the evil and the corruption of this world can be healed. No matter how silly we have to watch it in, whatever form it's in, it still resonates deeply in our hearts because we long for redemption. We long for the evil to be eradicated. And silly little superheroes doing it reminds us that there is an actual hero who did do it, who did in an instant, through his own death, render evil temporary and promises full restoration one day. That's our hope as we go to the table this morning. We long for a better day, and that's what this table reminds us of, of a better day that's to come. In the new heavens and the new earth, a better meal, a greater feast. If it's what you long for and you recognize this table for this morning, then I'd ask you to join me in taking these elements. But if not, then don't come. Don't come before you ask yourself where your hope lies. Ask yourself what it all means. If it resonates deep in your soul and causes you to surrender your schemes and attempts to control life, then come to the table, even for the first time today, in humility and repentance. Let's pray.